Horror movies have this stereotype where the characters in the movie often do stupid things, right? That just kind of set themselves up for failure and you can kind of anticipate this isn't going to go well. You guys know that Geico commercial where there's uh, these folks who are running away supposedly from a murderer and one of them goes, let's hide in the attic. No, let's hide in the basement. And then I think it's one of the ladies goes, why don't we just get in the running car? What are you, crazy? And so then the, uh, so one of the guys says, let's hide behind that pile of chainsaws. And they get in the garage with the pile of chainsaws and the murderers like standing behind them like, what are you guys doing? And eventually, uh, you hear them at the end of the commercial, they're, they're, they're running away from the murderer yelling, head to the cemetery! It's just, it's stereotypic, right? The voiceover, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. It's what you do, right? You want to you save money on car insurance, you switch to Geico. It's what you do, okay? And we think to ourselves, we watch things like that in a movie, and we're like, oh man, like this is, this is not going to go well, the ominous... Music comes in. And this is how we're supposed to feel reading Judges chapter 1. That this is not going to end well. You see, the initial success of the conquest under Joshua quickly turns into failure in Judges. Joshua, the book that precedes Judges. And this failure, in our chapter that Danica just read, it provides the building blocks or the prelude for the cycle of apostasy throughout the rest of the book. Our passage today wants to make this claim upon us, that God's people need to be led in the eradication of evil, which ensnares. That God's people need to be led in the eradication of evil, because evil ensnares us, sin ensnares us. You see, the failure of evil's eradication And the conquest of evil in this passage, it ends up resulting in the ensnaring of God's people. It serves as a prelude to their eventual apostasy. And so we're going to be using chapter 2, 1 through 5 really as our home base for understanding what's going on in this passage. This is where God comes and speaks through this angel of the Lord figure. And so there's really going to be three steps in our sermon today. First, we see in chapter 2, that beginning in chapter 2 there, that God reminds them of the covenant. We get a covenant review or a covenant reminder. Second, we get a covenant indictment. They have failed to follow the covenant, a covenant indictment. And thirdly, a covenant judgment, the consequences for their disobedience. So covenant review, covenant indictment, covenant judgment. Let's start off with the covenant reminder or covenant review. In chapter 2, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. And so we see that God reminds his people of the covenant that he made with him. And it's really important to understand the context of the whole Bible to really understand what's going on here in the book of Judges. we got to start all the way back in creation. You see, the Garden of Eden, when God created the world and he placed Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden, that garden served as an original paradise for humanity. 
Uh, Old Testament scholar Graham's Goldsworthy, he has summarized the content of that passage this way as sort of like this is the initial form of God's kingdom in the Garden of Eden by saying it was God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing and presence, okay? And that's how he kind of summarizes what the kingdom pattern looks like across scripture, and it really starts in the garden. God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, Eden, under God's rule, doing what he commands and experiencing his blessing as his presence. We see that carried out then through the rest of scripture. But after the fall then, where we have the ruin of creation, the ruin of humanity, spurred on and, and initiated, triggered by humanity's rebellion, God eventually makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. And in this covenant, God issues promises that begin his program of restoring that kingdom, God's people in God's place under his rule, experiencing his presence. God then makes good on these promises in the Exodus. The Exodus is really God taking those promises to Abraham and enacting them. And so he, what does he do in the Exodus? He delivers his people out of bondage, not only to release them from bondage, but to bring them to Sinai, to make a covenant with them, to make him his people, God's people. And when he makes that covenant relation with them, giving, his, giving him his law under God's rule, he then aims to give them a land in God's place with a tabernacle, God's presence. God's people in God's place, experiencing his rule, experiencing his presence. And so the Exodus makes good on that program, brings them to Sinai, and then from Sinai, what do they do? They go to the land, which is a recovery of that original Eden paradise. The promised land is supposed to be like a new garden of Eden. And it's in this land that Israel was to live out its calling as a holy nation, a sort of new humanity, a new way to be human, in a new Eden, thereby serving as a light to the nations around it, that they could see the God of Israel and the sort of salvation he was in the business of carrying out. And so that's where we find ourselves here in the book of Judges with this call to conquer the land and enter this new Eden. And so in receiving the land, Israel was commanded by God to devote the people to destruction, the inhabitants, to devote them to destruction. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this all about? And there's a lot of ethical questions that people raise about this. Now, admittedly, this is a big topic, and uh, there's a lot more that would need to be said to address this satisfactorily, but let's at least make some initial comments to help us understand this passage. So if you turn to Genesis 15, or if you just listen with me, Genesis 15, this is when God is making his covenant to Abraham. In verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants or slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, that's Egypt. God is anticipating that. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. That's the Exodus. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 16, and they shall come back here, that is to the promised land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the first thing we need to know is that God was uniquely using the Israelites as a vehicle of his judgment upon the people who dwelled in the land. Notice that the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. But now we've reached the point in Judges and Joshua where that sin has filled up and judgment is now due and deserving. 
In other words, this isn't God using Israel to destroy a people based on their ethnic identity, like the genocides of the 20th century, nor was this the destruction of some sort of innocent bystanders. These were not innocent people. They were evil, evil people. And you can look at Judges 1-7, for example, Adonai Bezek. He says, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Even Adonai Bezek recognized the rightness of God's judgment. And ironically, in our objections, we can find ourselves raising concerns about the Canaanites' judgment that they didn't even question. They understood its justice. But on the other hand, not only should we understand it as a judgment, and God, of course, has the the right to judge, the wages of sin is death, and if he brings that into history, that's his prerogative. But on the other hand, one of the other reasons for the destruction of the Canaanites was for the sake of Israel, that Israel would not succumb to the idolatry and evil of these nations, as they were called to be a holy nation. So if you turn to Exodus 23, or just listen with me, Exodus 23, verses 32 to 33, this is God's covenant with Israel that he makes with them at Sinai. And he tells them, when you guys go into the land, verse 32, you shall, no, you shall make no covenant with those people, with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely, it will surely, sorry, be a snare to you. Now notice that word, it will be a snare to you. That's the same word that's going to show up in chapter 2 here. It's going to be a snare to you. Or Numbers 33, another part of the, of the Torah. Numbers 33, 55 to 56. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then those of whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your Side, same language, thorns in your side. That's the same language that shows up in chapter 2 here. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So really, this passage is, is we're seeing the fulfillment of these warnings in chapter 2 here. So in the book of Joshua, it, the book of Joshua recounts the initial and rather successful taking of this land. Joshua confirms God's promises to give them the land. He says all of God, God has been faithful to, to fulfill all of his promises if only the people would respond in obedience and take the land. And if Joshua then is, is the seizing of this land, Judges now recounts a period after Joshua's death where the people of Israel failed to possess the land completely. To finish the job. And this, we should note, is not merely a failure then. But in light of the covenant and God's promises, we have to understand it as a violation of that covenant. It's disobedience. It's rebellion against God. It's a failure ultimately to trust God and to lay hold of the covenant promises that he has given. And so because of Israel's disobedience, They will go on, instead of experiencing the blessings of the covenant, they will go on to experience the curses of the covenant, just as the covenant predicted. Instead of securing the promises of the covenant, through their disobedience, they are securing for themselves the curses of it. And eventually, as the story of scripture goes on, after judges, after the kings have been established, 
the, this, this failure that starts here is going to go so far as to result in Israel's exile from the land. They'll be removed from the land. And so as they fail to remove the inhabitants from the land, so they themselves ultimately will be removed from it. God is going to reverse the redemption that he worked in the Exodus. He's going to put his people back into bondage, like under Egypt. This time a new Egypt, Assyria and Babylon. And thus Israel ultimately will repeat the cycle that we already saw with Adam's disobedience. As Adam was exiled from Eden for his disobedience, so Israel will be removed from what was intended to be their new Eden. As God said essentially to Adam, remove the serpent or you yourself will be removed. So he says now to Israel, remove the Canaanites or you yourself will be removed. If only we had a new Adam, that would be great. If only we had a new Israel though, or, or, or a new exodus, or a new covenant to bring us into a new Eden. So secondly, we see the covenant indictment. The covenant indictment. There's the covenant review. Now in the rest of verse 2, we get the covenant indictment. But God says, but you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed that covenant. What is this you have done? God indicts them with violating the covenant he made with them. And we saw this in the details that Danica read for us in the text. You know, things start off pretty well with Judah. The people of Israel inquire of the Lord initially, and, and Judah successfully conquers several territories. We even get this portrait of this woman, Aksa, one of the, one of the, fir the first among many sort of strong female characters in the book. She's the daughter of Caleb of the tribe of Judah. And she takes the initiative to secure good dwelling in the promised land. So things are off to a good start with Judah for the most part. But as the account goes on, things increasingly get worse. Even by the end of the report of Judah, they fail to drive out the inhabitants of the plain. And when we get to the northern tribes, things go downhill fast. We repeatedly read how they fail to drive out the inhabitants, with Joseph even initially. They, what do they do? They make a covenant. They're not supposed to do that. They make a covenant with a man when they're destroying Luz. And they destroy Luz, great, but it's kind of a whack-a-mole operation. They destroy Luz just so the guy can go and make a new Luz. And instead of conquering the people and destroying them like they were supposed to do, they subject them to forced labor. And if we know the Pentateuch and what God has warned, as we just read, like red flags are going off in our mind. Like, this is not good. This is not going to end well. Let's run to the cemetery. By the time we get to Dan, the tribe of Dan, we're actually getting a reverse conquest. Look at verse 34 with me. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. So rather than Dan going in and, and pushing them back, even to the point of at least subjugating them, Dan is getting pushed back. I mean, this is not going well. Now, here's the thing. By normal standards, the Israelites' behavior would have seemed rather reasonable. Okay, so on the one hand, get this, on the one hand, Israel didn't attack those who were more powerful than them. And that's ordinary military power. Okay, if you're weaker than somebody, you don't go out of your way to attack them. Okay, a poodle shouldn't attack a pit bull, right? Why? Because you're bound to lose and you're going to suffer great loss. 
Now, on the other hand, Israel, instead of destroying those who were weaker than them, they, sub, they sub, subjugated them. They oppressed them. And this, of course, is standard military advice as well. Standard military policy would say, don't go out of your way to drive out people who aren't even a threat to you when you can actually uh, exploit them economically. Okay? So Israel, by human standards, is doing the reasonable thing, but they're not doing the thing that was demanded of them with eyes of faith. What God commanded Israel actually did require great faith and obedience to actually destroy those that they could otherwise just leave and exploit and to drive out those who they would, uh, by appearance's sake, have no chance against. And so Israel's disobedience here is really a failure of faith. It's a failure to trust in God and to take his promises seriously. This is how we should interpret the notes then about them failing to drive people out. It's not just a military failure. It's a failure of faith. So, for example, we see in Judges 1 verse 2, when they, ask, when they inquire the Lord, Yahweh said, Judah shall go up, and behold, I have given the land into his hand. God gave them the land. It's theirs to take. Look at verse 4 now. Then Judah went up, and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. God gave it to them. He's giving them the land if only they take it. So then when we get to verse 19, if you look at verse 19, where it says, and Yahweh was with Judah, God is with Judah. He's with them still. But Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, notice. And it says, because they had chariots of iron. But we're not supposed to read this as a mere military failure, but covenant disobedience, a lack of faith, because God was with them. And we see this throughout the rest of the book. God is able to work miraculous victories through the judges. This is the same God who parted the Red Sea. Are chariots really a big deal to God? We're supposed to read between the lines. And in many ways, this is what we see across the scripture. On the one hand, we have a faith fueled obedience or a disbelieving disobedience. That obedience in scripture is, 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 is many ways, it's downstream of faith in God's promises and disobedience is downstream of disbelieving. It's the same thing we saw when the first generation was initially going to enter the land, right? But when they, when they sent the 12 spies, they saw the giants, they were intimidated. Their disobedience to enter the land was ultimately a matter of disbelieving God's promises to them. And so to hear, they, they reject the option of faith-fueled obedience in turn for disbelieving disobedience. That sin often has at its root a lack of trusting in God. And so we've seen the covenant reminder, we've seen the covenant indictment, and now we finally get the result, the outcome, the consequence, covenant judgment. So look at me with, uh, look with me at verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. That same language we saw before. The result is that God, on the count of the people's failure to conquest the land sufficiently, God is now going to cause its inhabitants to be snares to his people. It's, it's sort of like if, if someone is diagnosed with cancer and they initially have to do a surgery to remove the tumor, the doctor, if they know what they're doing, they're not going to go in and just kind of be like, well, let's just remove this part and we'll kind of leave the rest. Right? What's going to happen? It's going to grow back. 
It's not ultimately going to solve the problem. And in many ways, that's what Israel is doing here. It's only a partial job. It's only a partial surgery. They're not removing all of the cancer. You see, evil and sin is like a cancer that grows and it spreads and it takes over. That's the language here. It's ensnaring. It's a trap. And so here in this passage, we're seeing the groundwork laid for the rest of the book. Whereas Israel was to call, called to be a holy nation that showed off in its peculiar way to the nations who its God, God was. It was supposed to be different from the nations. As we talked about last week, in many ways, the book of Judges shows us the Canaanization of Israel. Rather than them being different from Canaan and Canaan being drawn to them, they are drawn to Canaan and they become like the Canaanites. Even here with the account of cutting off Adonai Bezek's thumbs and his toes, like that's not something the law would have told them to do. That's mutilation. They were told to destroy the people, not mutilate the people. You start to wonder, is this, are they already becoming even initially like the Canaanites in their behavior? God called them to be a witness to the surrounding nations, to be set apart and unique, and they're becoming just like the nations. And so the people respond, at least in this moment in verse 4 and 5, that as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, which means weepers, and they sacrificed there to Yahweh. And at this point in the narrative, we're kind of left wondering, well, you know, is this genuine repentance? Was this mere tears or is this actual reform? And of course, we're going to see our answer as the book goes on. When I was in Israel, we were traveling down to the Dead Sea, the southern part of Israel, and on the road uh, to the Dead Sea, um, if you know anything about Israel, you know that Israel lately, in many ways, has a history of a lot of wars. There's been a lot of wars fought on their land. And so when we're driving to the Dead Sea, to my, I remember to my right, I have a picture of it, because um, it, it was crazy, right? Uh, I get this gate, and there's these signs that say, uh, don't go into this field over here, Okay. This is not your normal no trespassing sign, though, because the sign says, uh, don't go into that field because there's landmines in it. Okay? Now, the field looked completely normal. There's nothing seems to be amiss. Everything looks good from above the surface. But if you were to walk on that land, there's these landmines from a previous war that was fought, presumably, you know. Those landmines are ready to go off at any moment at the, the, the soonest misstep. And the failure of this conquest in chapter 1 here is the building blocks. It's the, it's the building blocks for this cycle of apostasy that's going to occur throughout the rest of the book. And at this point, Israel is just laying for themselves these spiritual landmines that are now going to explode across the landscape of the rest of the book in the judges' cycle. This is a prelude to their apostasy. And so this passage has demonstrated to us the danger of ensnaring sin, the prelude to apostasy that it is. And it demonstrates us the need for covenant faithfulness. It shows us the need, ultimately, for one who can lead us in a sufficient conquest, one who can lead us in the eradication of such ensnaring evil. God's people desperately need to be led in the eradication of evil that ensnares us. And the background to this failure, these insufficient conquests we saw in the very first line, is that there's the death of Joshua. 
Exodus begins with the fact that there's the death of Joseph, and then Joshua begins with a line about the death of Moses. But in each of those, there's a passing of the mantle, then to Joshua ultimately. Here we have the death of Joshua, so a similar sort of thing happening. But no one takes over. There's a vacancy in leadership. There's no succession. And of course, at the, as the end of the book will show us, everyone's doing right in their own sight, which is parallel to the line that there was no king in the land. We're supposed to read those together. The lack of a king created not only political anarchy, but religious anarchy. But here's the thing, not just any king is needed. We don't need a king in our own image as the people would eventually ask for in 1 Samuel 8 when they got Saul. I want you to notice how the tribe of Judah is highlighted in this passage, especially contra, uh, contrary to Benjamin. Benjamin, is, which is where Saul was from, they don't drive out the Jebusites in Jerusalem. They're kind of put in a bad light. So Saul's tribe is, is not doing so well, and they're not going to do well at the end of the book either. A lot of that crazy stuff at the end, that has to do with Benjamin. That has to do with Saul's people. In other words, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. You want a good king? Well, what's going on with Judah here? We see in many ways, as chapter 1 has showed us, the, the initial success of the conquest was particularly under Judah, despite some shortcomings, obviously, but as the failure went on, that goes to the northern tribes. Joseph and North is when the failure occurs. And so in many ways, you'll notice this throughout the book, not just in this chapter, but we're going to see this throughout the book, that Judah is held up in these subtle ways. And if the original audience, remember, if they're reading, if, 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 if the author is writing to a time sort of around the monarchy of, of Saul or David time period, it's a way of alluding to the fact that not only do we need a king who can lead us in a sufficient conquest, but we need the right sort of king. We need a king like David. We need a king after God's own heart, a king from Judah. But ultimately, we know that David himself is not the final answer, as good as he was, relatively speaking, to his other uh, kings. Ultimately, we need Jesus from the lineage of David. We need the greater David. We need the king who will reign forever, who will finally, once and for all, eliminate all evil on our behalf and eliminate evil from within our own hearts. You see, the same kingdom program of God's people in God's place, experiencing God's presence under his rule that began in the Garden of Eden, that is being dealt with here in the book of Judges as a new people, as a new corporate Adam is entering into a new Garden of Eden with God's presence to be among them in the tabernacle. This same program of the kingdom is eventually what Jesus announces when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's the eventual program that Jesus has fulfilled on the cross through his resurrection on behalf of his people, the church. We are the heirs to the promises that are being dealt with in the book of Judges. And we too, a part of that kingdom, is that that kingdom needs to have the eradication of evil, which ensnares. We have the same need that as we look at the people of Israel, in many ways it would be wrong of us to look at Israel and be like, man, those guys are dumb, those guys are stupid, and not realize that it's meant to be a mirror of our own sinful hearts. We're the same stupidity that this book talks about, a sinful blindness. The book of Judges, in many ways, presents over and over ills and problems that will only eventually be resolved by Jesus Christ. Christ is the faithful covenant partner that Israel was not, that we have not been. 
Christ is the faithful covenant partner who finally realizes the promise of the covenants through his successful conquest of evil, by defeating evil once and for all, by defeating death once and for all, by bringing about a new Eden through eventually when he comes back and brings about a new creation. He's the one who bears the curses of the covenant, that as Israel here is already going to be experiencing the curses of the covenant, so Paul says in Galatians 3.13, I believe it's verse 13, that Christ died on a tree because everyone who was hung on a tree was cursed by God, and thereby dying on a, on a tree, Christ bore the curse of the covenants for us. So now we can be released to have a right relationship with God. Not only does Jesus successfully destroy all evil, and he's done that in principle now, and he will do that finally when he returns. We're still waiting for the full realization of that. Not only has he saved us from our own evil by, by bearing the penalty for our sin, the curses, but now he is increasingly making us a more faithful people, people who more faithfully fulfill the covenant, as we as a church are striving to make maturing followers of Jesus by the power of Christ's gospel. Jesus is the Davidic king that we so desperately need, who leads us finally in righteousness, even better than David ever could. This passage shows us that our sin brings us into so much difficulty and misery. It's just one portrait of it. We make a mess of ourselves. We, 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 we have sin as this snare, sin as a thorn in our side. And this itself, in many ways, as we see in this passage, is God is doing this on purpose. He's using sin as a snare and as a barb in our eyes to show us our need to be rescued from sin. This is a form of God's judgment, of, of, as Romans 1 says, handing us over into our sin, giving us what we want. We go after sin and sin just only ensnares us all the more. God causes our sin to be ensnaring, that this might awaken in us our need for deliverance. And so if you're here today and you are not yet trusting in Christ for that deliverance, that is, our, that is our plea for you to do that, even now. To put your trust in Christ, to be awakened to your own need, the own sin, the own, your own disobedience and rebellion before the God who made you, that, that, that wreaks havoc all over your life. And the need to then put your trust in Christ, we see that we can't do it. The book of Judges is going to show us that humanity and our sin, we can't do it, we're always failing. We need to trust in Christ, the one who paid for the penalty for our sin on the cross and can, and can give us new hearts that beat after God. And so as we think about how we can respond to a passage like this, let me give us three responses. The first is that as believers, we continually look to Christ with ever thankfulness for his covenant faithfulness on our behalf. And that's, that's the first response. We read this book and we see the needs that Jesus is meeting for us. We should just be thankful. We should live lives out of that thankfulness. I mean, one of the prayers I have for our church is that as we go through the book of Judges, God would use this book to increase in us a longing and our sense of need for Jesus. That if we're apt to forget how much we need Jesus that the book of Judges would just make it unavoidably clear to us how much we need him. Second, I think a passage like this would tell us to do an inventory on our life. Maybe using the uh, personal development doc that the elders have put together to look at areas of growth. Why? Because we recognize the need for faith-fueled, absolute loyalty to God. This passage shows us the danger of a mere partial eradication 
of things that ensnare us. The need is for absolute eradication, absolute loyalty to God, no compromise. Why? Because we see in this passage that sin is ensnaring. Coasting creates fertile ground for the subtle growth of what eventually leads to outright idolatry. You see that in the book, okay? The, the coasting, the, the, the subtle compromises. It doesn't seem like a big deal. This seems like reasonable military endeavors, but it creates fertile ground for the subtle growth of what's eventually going to turn out into outright idolatry. What starts as merely tolerating sin eventually leads to embracing that sin. What begins as apathy eventually turns to apostasy. What initially seems reasonable later proves to be lethal. And what at the time seemed like no big deal at all eventually shows itself to be the prelude to our downfall. D.A. Carson says this. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We, we cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slide towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Thirdly, I think this passage shows us that we ought to live with faith in God's promises. If, I, if as I've argued, one of the root issues of Israel's sin was their lack of faith, it was, it was a disobedience rooted in disbelief, ultimately. But really what was held out to them was a, was a, was a, was a faith-fueled faithfulness because of God's promises, not because of anything in them, but because of God's promises, then I think it should encourage us to do the same. That we would take risks for God. That we would really, really believe the promises that he gives us in Scripture. And live like we believe it. Taking risks, actually obeying him in ways that require sacrifice, in ways that are hard, in ways that are not easy, because we believe his promises are true. And in this passage, Israel's failure to conquest eventually hindered them from fulfilling their vocation as God's unique people. It, 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 it made it impossible for them to serve as a light to the nations. And so too, the church's ability, our ability as a church, corporately speaking now, our ability to fulfill our vocation and our mission, it hinges on our faithfulness, on our absolute loyalty, no partial eradication of evil. And so as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper then, this passage shows us a Christ who is the victor. As uh, sometimes theologians will talk about, they use this Latin phrase, Christus victor, Christ the victor, as one way of thinking about what Jesus has done on the cross. That he is the one who ultimately leads us in victory over sin, its penalty, its power, and over death. Why? Because he has borne the curses of the covenant for us, for our disobedience. Not because of his disobedience. So I was reading through the children's book with, with Jubilee and Evangeline. Uh, did Jesus die because he was disobedient, because he was unfaithful? No, he was dying for our sins, 
so that we can go free and so that we can experience the joy of salvation in him, so that we can experience the conquest on his coattails. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper every week. As Jesus held up the bread and the wine, these emblems, these pictured promises of his, of his death on our behalf, he's telling us, believer, that as we partake in these things, that conquest, that victory, that salvation is ours for all who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ.